0: and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches.
1: Well, I am convinced that the best technology is the invisible technology. So you will be glad to know we have already ordered a new projector and a new computer. They're already being on the way, so those glitches that we had won't be happening in the future our worship team and stewards and church life committee already had the forethought to get rid of a problem before we saw that we had a problem so it's coming recently i rewatched as is my memorial day custom the movie saving private riot and i realized that dramatic license was taken in the production of this story that is rooted in a true story. The movie begins and ends in the American Cemetery in Normandy, France, as one veteran reflects upon the events that put his lieutenant in that place. The majority of the movie is a flashback leading up to the moment when the lieutenant whispers in the young private's ears two words earn this. Last week, we began reading through the book of Revelation, and our takeaway was, no matter what your situation, you have a Savior who is victor. Now, there is no way possible for us to earn what Jesus did to save us out of our situation. But there is a response that is assumed in the verses we read today. Now, while most pastors would take today's text and divide it into at least eight different sermons, I know you are ready for the four-hour marathon. And so I believe if we view this as one unity, we can identify the response that is appropriate that John assumes we would have. Here's my operational thesis. John, in a vision from Jesus, expects a mindset that is worthy of the Master. And this mindset is rooted in his own obedience and suffering. If last week we admired the Savior in our situation, this week I want us to cultivate a mindset that is worthy of the Master. This mindset from John is also challenged for us by Paul in at least three different places. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which is fully pleasing to Him. Since this expectation was expressed both by the apostle who was converted after Christ, Paul, and the one who was closest to Christ during his earthly ministry, if both of them say there is a mindset in a manner that is worthy and expected, it's reasonable for us to believe that that expectation is also relevant and reasonable for us today. It is reasonable, it is relevant to believe that we, in this age, as we wait for the King who is coming, would live worthy of the calling, worthy of the gospel, and worthy of our Lord. Let's look beginning in verse 9 of chapter 1, where we see the setting of the vision. The setting is on an island, but not all trips to an island are for leisure or for vacation. As a matter of fact, John is not on an island vacation. He says specifically in verse 9 that on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus... He has been sent to the island of Patmos, which is just to the outside of Ephesus. When I look at Patmos compared to Ephesus, I thought of Alcatraz. And just as Alcatraz is not a desired residency for those in San Francisco, Patmos was not a dream for those who were living in Ephesus. Some commentators on Bible backgrounds claim that John was likely in forced labor in the mines on the island. When he is in Patmos, this is not a vacation, this is not a white beach in a hammock with a cool drink. But in the midst of this persecution that put John on this island, he then says in verse 10 that he is carried away in the Spirit to the Lord's day. We read in the Spirit, and in our modern context, we would think that this is some sort of a charismatic experience that John may have had on a Sunday morning. And while we refer to the Lord's day as our day of rest and worship, this was not common This was not a common way to refer to the first day of the week in the early church. When John wrote this book, if he wrote the Lord's Day, people would not think Sunday. It soon became associated with the Lord's Day, the resurrection being on Sunday. But that would not have been the context when John is writing this. When he talks about the Lord's Day, the day of the Lord... The day of the Lord goes back to the Hebrew scriptures that looked forward to a time when Messiah would establish his ultimate righteousness. Before Christ ever walked on earth, they were looking forward to the day when the Lord sets all things right. And this is the day that John is looking forward to we can look forward to verse 19 and we find a divine outline of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 reviews what has happened up until the time that John writes, the things you have seen. Chapters 2 and 3 that we're looking at today describe the things that are. And verse 10 means for us that John was... Spiritually, not physically, taken to that day in which the Lord sets everything right. In the vision, not physically, he was taken to that day and then he comes back and he writes what he saw in that vision. He's in the spirit and he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. John hears before he sees, which would have been expected of the Jewish audience to which John is writing. After all, the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6 begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. It does not say, Read, O Israel. It says, Hear. To the Jewish mind, they heard... And testimony was passed down orally before it was ever passed down written. And John hears before he sees. The resurrection is when Jesus begins to say, Behold and touch, see that it is me. But before that, it is always, Hear first, see later. Now, notice he heard this voice that was like a trumpet. Trumpets were associated with official or forward-looking public proclamations. The trumpet would sound to get your attention, and then something important would follow the blast of the trumpet. See, John is not moved into the day of the Lord to have some personal spiritual experience. And this was not a personal experience, which is when he is told in verse 11 to write in a book. Now, we hear book, and we know what book means, right? Book means cover, pages, back cover, bound together, turn the pages. But in the first century, they didn't have codex. They didn't have books with covers and individual pages. They had scrolls. But scrolls could be very common, everybody used, but there were special scrolls, scrolls that were called Biblios, books. A Biblion could be a rather brief document. It can be only one page. You could have a one-page book, as in a certificate of divorce that is referred to in the gospels that one page official document would be considered a book also a book could be a longer composition that explained but book makes it official rather than just scrap paper And John was told, write this in an official way that's important for everybody to listen. This isn't a scrap paper. This is an official proclamation that needs to be heard and understood. Now, I don't believe that John wrote seven seven separate notes to the seven churches. I believe he wrote one 22-chapter composition, and this whole thing was copied or passed among the churches that were in the map that I just showed you. The individual addresses that we see in chapters 2 and 3 would have been read by the other six churches. So it begins by saying, here's the message for Ephesus. But the other six churches are going to know what Jesus said to Ephesus because that's going to hold them accountable to what Jesus asked. So these aren't seven separate notes where you read your own post-it note. All seven of the churches read the message to the other six in order to hold accountability. Secondly, I see the source of the vision in verses 12 through 20. The setting was on Patmos. It's seven, It's one letter sent to seven churches, but the source is not in a personal dream. This was not a mere dream. This is so specific and majestic, it could not have been like anything John had observed personally. I'm told by people who know more than I do about these things, that whenever you dream, it is your brain's way of bringing back previous memories and trying to tie them together. That's why you will never die in a dream. You've never experienced death, therefore, you will never dream. You know, you may be falling, but you'll never hit bottom because you've never experienced that. But the vision that John receives here is not based upon his previous experience. This is so majestic, this is so royal, this is so out of this world. It had to have been a vision from outside of himself, not from his own dreams. I believe that this was not only a mere dream, but it is just dripping with Old Testament allusions. Now, I know you can't see this because of the distance, but just allow it to say each one of those lines is another verse that is referring to something in the Old Testament. So in these verses 9 through 20, or 12 through 20, we have close to 25 different references to Old Testament phrases. We read about the Son of Man. We read about God having white hair, which would have been very unusual for olive-skinned individuals. We read about having eyes of fire, having feet of bronze, having a roaring voice, having a face that shines. And all of these are Old Testament pictures. So we know that this one who walks amidst the lampstands, even though John knew Jesus, this vision of Jesus draws from all of the Old Testament prophecies that had been given by God. And this God, who is majestic, speaks with a sword coming out of his mouth. Now this word for sword, the sharp two-edged sword, is not a ceremonial saber that royalty would wear on its hip. This is a shorter weapon that is designed for warfare. And Jesus speaking with this short warfare weapon is an indication that what we are about to read is... um, Jesus is about to execute judgment. Jesus, the one who speaks with the sharp two-edged sword, is about to carry out judgment, and it's not all flowers and gumdrops. See, John's awe at this supernatural supernatural vision is about to get very detailed and very specific. Now, last week I proclaimed to you, whatever your situation, but I did not attempt to get into the specifics of your life. And rather than simply offering general words of comfort that would be true of all, Jesus does not say, I know you've been disappointed. We have, haven't we? Or Jesus doesn't say, I know you've been hurt. And what Christian has not been hurt? Or Jesus does not say, I know that you have questions that go unanswered. See, those are general things that would be true of all of us. But chapters 2 and 3 are very specific that shows that Jesus knows our intimate concerns better than anyone else. Jesus is about to say, I know you. And I know your ways. And Jesus says this in ways that are very individual and very intimate. So that when you read the book of Revelation, you can read that this is coming from a God who knows me even better than the preacher up on the stage. Now before we go into chapter 2, I probably owe you an explanation of the reference to angels in verse 20. The word angels literally means messengers. So Jesus says to the messenger of the church, and then he gives the message. The premier dictionary of biblical Greek offers two designations for this word messenger. The word angelos, messenger, can be a human messenger who serves a a people, or it can be a transcendent power who carries out various missions or tasks, as we would think of an angel from heaven. So the very word itself, just because we read angel and we begin to think wings and harps in heaven, that's not necessarily what the word says. He says, "...from Jesus I say to the messenger that will say to the church." It is unlikely that this is referring to a transcendent power other than the fact that God has placed an authority figure in each local church. We tend to read Acts chapter 2 and we get the idea that the church is like King Arthur's table. Nobody has any authority over anyone else. We're all on equal ground around the round table. But the New Testament picture of the church does speak of, one, those who accept responsibility for the care of others, the presbytos, and second, those who are part of a council or an administrative group, as in our Council of Elders. God has placed messengers in the local church that are separate from, and so we're not just all doing our own thing. And we have here in front of us an example of God giving to the messenger who gives to the people. Now, allow me to say I'm not going on a power trip here, as some pastors would do. Because sometimes a lay person is the messenger of a congregation. It has nothing to do with seminary, it has nothing to do with Bible college, it has nothing to do with ordination. It's simply God has, a pla- God has placed leaders in the local church, and he communicates to the church through those leaders, as he does here in chapters 2 and 3. In our time remaining, though, let us look at the structure of these messages, And instead of looking at each message to each church, I'm kind of looking at them as a whole. What what is true of all seven of these messages? The first thing that is true of these seven is that it begins with an attribute of Christ. Each message, each church receives a specific description of Jesus. Jesus. I am thrilled that our ladies have spent several months reveling in the attributes of our God. Because it is easy for us to get locked into our preconceived ideas of who God is and what He does. Some have said that we try to squeeze God into our own little box of our imagination, and when we revel in His attributes, we begin to say, God may be greater than I had perceived. And so each of these messages begins with one of those, have you ever thought of God in this way? Kind of ways of expanding our mind to imagine that God cannot be put into a box. By providing a unique quality of himself for each church, Jesus is inviting us to personally explore, to think of him in ways that may not be our default. Because we see in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways You and I do not have a monopoly on our understanding of who God is. He is much greater than even our our wildest human imaginations can go. And Jesus begins with an attribute to say, I am greater, I'm beyond your default. After he gives an introduction of himself, then I see that Jesus mention some items that are admirable about each church. Long before Mary Poppins figured out that a little bit of sugar makes the medicine go down, Jesus models that people will respond better if they know you don't hate them. People will respond better if you can start by saying something nice. And Jesus begins by saying something nice. We were talking at the very end of our Sunday school class this morning about how we either focus on our shortcomings and we think too little of ourselves, or we move to the other extreme where we know we're forgiven, we know we're seated in the heavenlies, we know that we are heirs to God, and we think too highly of ourselves. But the mindset that John assumes is that this Almighty God sees something admirable in each person, in each church. Rather than concluding that we are all good, that we do everything right, or that we are all bad, that we never get anything right, Jesus demonstrates in most situations we can find something positive to start with. Jesus says some things in these chapters that are not real pleasant to hear. And our discipleship means that sometimes we will participate in discussions that are not all roses and gumdrops. Jesus starts with saying something positive because He is naturally gracious and kind. Most of us, we need to intentionally put on kindness part of being humble for us is to take a moment and to think of something positive to say before we have to deliver critical information colossians chapter 3 puts it this way put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience See, this is Father's Day pre-sermon. Dads, before we have to say something critical or something helpful, start by saying something positive, the way Jesus does to each of the churches. So he gives an attribute of himself. He says something that is admirable about the churches. And then he addresses sometimes there are things needing attention. By the church. Just because he starts with admiration doesn't mean that we can ignore the things that need our attention. It goes on to say, But I have this against you, or I have these things against you. But just because God has these things against the churches doesn't mean he is separating from the churches. And you may have conversations with brothers and sisters in your physical family and in our spiritual family. And sometimes we have to say, we disagree about this. But just because we disagree doesn't mean that we have to break fellowship. Jesus says to the churches, here's something that I have against. It's something that we can work on together. On Friday of this week, Ann and I drove to Manhattan to repair a couple of analog watches that we had given to each other over the last 30 years. We found a skilled craftsman who repairs grandfather and cuckoo clocks. And as we looked at the beautiful antique clocks throughout his workspace, he began to speak of a generation that has no respect for the antique. A generation that simply replaces things when they break rather than repair that which is precious and valuable. And I don't want to rag on any one generation because I know my generation throws away a lot of stuff that my parents' generation would have repaired. I think the point is that God is saying to the churches, even though I have this against you, I'm not running away from you. This is something that we can work on together. It needs attention. It needs to be addressed, but it doesn't have to be the end of our cooperation. Too many of us today use, I have some things against you, as a justification for us to go separate ways. But the maturing believer can admit, I have growth areas, and you have growth areas. And even if it's painful, it is worth the effort to be gracious with each other and to work towards harmony together. Then he goes on to say, not only does he give an attribute, not only does he give something, add and roll and something that needs attention, but he concludes all of these messages by giving them something to aspire or an assurance to hold on to. Jesus generally concludes each message with hope. He moves each church to look to a favorable future. Have you ever felt scolded by another believer? If you ever walked away from a conversation with your tail between your legs, it's probably an indication that aspiration or assurance were missing from that chat. See, we all need to have hope that a better future is possible or a better future is guaranteed. And Jesus concludes each of these messages. This is who I am. This is good about you. This is something you need to address. But let's have hope as we move towards the future. See, Jesus neither abandons a single church for their failures, nor does he concede that any one of these seven has already attained full maturity. Each church receives a comfort, and each church is given a challenge, but it always concludes there's hope for a better future. Now let me bring these seven messages to seven churches down to your seat. The application is is that healthy things grow, and growth means change. Change. Yesterday, thousands of people descended upon our county to celebrate the heritage of what our area has been. I've been enamored in recent weeks with the historical drama that was set in the early 20th century. Yesterday on Irma's pasture, the lights, the speakers, the chairs, the tents that were all deployed by the symphony are indicator that things have changed in the last 100 years in the Flint Hills. The historic drama that I've been studying portrays the angst over changes before and after the First World War. In the early scenes of this drama, there was consternation about, you're actually bringing electricity into the house? Several chapters later, there was conflict about bringing a a telephone into the house? And a few chapters later, you're actually going to bring a gramophone into the house? And you're actually going to bring a wireless, a radio, into the house? And in this historic drama, there's great angst about the way things used to be, about the way things are going in the future, and it simply says, can we stay in the past? What is good, what is not? The reality is, is if we try to stay all in the past, and we don't admit that there's a brighter future, if we don't move towards our preferred future, stagnation and decay will set in when our growth stops. And when our growth stops, organisms become unhealthy. I have no doubt that sometime in your Christian pilgrimage, you felt overwhelmed and ready to give up. But rather than give in and give up, if we press through, we find a bright sunrise after the dark night. I have no doubt that sometimes some of us have entertained the idea that we've already arrived. We may have experienced some spiritual victories and we're tempted with the idea that we've settled into a routine that totally pleases our God. So you may, at one extreme, feel like you're not worthy and you can't move on. On the other hand, you say, I've got this all figured out. There's nothing that needs to change. The reality is is our mindset that is worthy of our master says there is a preferred future that I am moving towards. Each church that was addressed by Jesus had some positive qualities and some negative qualities. But they all had room for improvement. And you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, have some positive qualities. You have some things that need attention. And whenever love or building up of others demands that you express something painful, always wrap it on both sides with something pleasant. As Jesus did. Any of us who has ever administered medicine to a pet knows that a little cheese, a little peanut butter, or a piece of meat makes the medicine process much more pleasant. If we can wrap the medicine in something pleasant, and there may be times when you have to have a hard discussion with a brother or sister in Christ. But be like Christ and rapid in kindness, as he did for the churches. Jesus was gracious in the way that he addressed these seven churches, and God is gracious in the way that he moves us towards maturity. We should be gracious in our exchange with others. As we adopt a mindset that is worthy of the master, it will carry us through suffering and it will increase our obedience, as it did for John. My prayer this morning is that we each would receive the comfort from our Savior's commendation while at the same time aspiring actively towards greater maturity. There is no way that we can earn this, there is no way that we can repay for our salvation but we can walk in a manner that is worthy of our master. Our final song this morning is a testimony of those of us who are moving towards a higher plane. So if Gene or Jan could uh, join at the piano, number 399, the song Higher Ground, and we'll sing verses 2 and 3 if you want to look it up in the book in front of you.